John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1274.LK1619, certificate number 21225. Take Ivy. So we've had a, a couple of entries in the omnibus that reference style, fashion, clothes, yeah, I think people enjoy you talking about clothes. Your your natural enthusiasm comes out, even though they can't see what you're wearing. Right. I, w- I, I wish that people around my own house were as excited about hearing me talk about clothes as, as uh, futurelings seem to be. But you can pull rank. You can say, hey, you guys are bored with this endless monologue about <laughs> this endless sartorial monologue. But I have 40,000 listeners. Yeah. Who can't get enough of this. That's right. And then you just slam the door behind you and walk out. Take that, I say. Well, a, a, lot, of the, uh, a lot of the conversations we've had uh, around clothes have, um, have sort of orbited the idea of preppy style. And preppy style... Why uh, do you think that is? Is that meaningful to you? Preppy style is meaningful to me. And, and for a lot of reasons that I think in the contemporary, you know, our immediate universe would be considered problematic. It is the, uh, it's the fashion of the moneyed class. And a lot of what preppy style represents is a permutation of the sports clothes of rich people from the turn of the century, right? What we think of now as it's not fancy just, dress. Not just expensive clothes. In fact, not maybe not uh, primarily luxurious clothes. Right. These were clothes meant to be sweated in. And if you were to see someone now dressed in, uh, you know, in your typical preppy outfit of cuffed chinos with a wool sweater around their neck and a Peter Pan collar and a striped rep tie, you would think, wow, what's up, Mr. Fancy Pants, you know, uh, relative to other people on that same, in, in first class of that same Delta Airlines flight to New York, uh, most of the other people are in flip-flops and trainers or trainer pants, that person would seem very fancy. But of course, that was an outfit that you put on to play tennis in 1920. So it's primarily a marker of heritage. It's a it's a reminder of a particularly kind of old-fashioned ruling class. Well, an old-fashioned ruling class at play. 
And yeah. that's the key. They're idle enough to to throw around the football. Right. In between Bay of Pigs's. If you think about uh turn turn of century in anywhere in America or Europe, the only people that really had an opportunity to play tennis uh were were the idle rich. And so the clothes didn't just communicate the wealth, it communicated the leisure. And part of what defines the 20th century is that leisure became something that uh, that industrialization and post-war culture, it became a, a, a thing that the mass was uh, had access to. Brought to more people. Right. Not universally, but... But, but... But leisure, you know, labor-saving devices were designed to give us more leisure. And when you th- when when parks were developed in the in the late nineteenth century, you know, Central Park was laid out. I mean, these things were were part of a kind of um, you know, social engineering experiment. Yeah, even the word park used to be the land around an estate where some rich guy had had game. Right. 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 And the idea that this is a public park is is explicitly saying, eh, what if everybody got some of the benefits of uh, of what used to be the wealthy life of leisure? Yeah, a, a place where the children could play. I mean, there are so many city parks in London that are gated and locked and available only to the people that live immediately the people around whose it. townhouses surround it. Right. Uh, that, that a public park, that playgrounds, that tennis courts would be built into... Uh, the city landscape, all of this is part of the idea that leisure um, should not just be the province of the wealthy, that leisure should, leisure was uh, a component of health and play and sport. Uh, these were, these were healthy diversions and they made for, um, you know, a, a more, well, a healthier and then ultimately probably more compliant <laughs> middle class, right? Well, plus, but then the wealthy have to continue to chase, to chase weirder dragons, right? right. I mean, like, not everyone's going to have access to the America's Cup, for instance. I mean that that or, kind of that kind polo. of is some some reason for the the fads for polo, and then yachting, and then you know now big game hunting, right? Well, car racing. Uh, right. I mean, those things. Motorcycle racing was initially a rich man's game. It was only when motorcycles became inexpensive enough or, you know, there were enough used motorcycles out there that it could become like a dangerous sport for ruffians. But initially, you know, motorcycling was just as preppy as anything. I guess today wealthy people just would go to the gym to try to keep that general air of health. Well, it's the strange, it's the strange conundrum of fitness that 200 years ago to be portly was a sign of wealth and privilege. And now the harder your body, the it, 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 um, yeah, that's kind of a legacy of the, of the preppy ideal that you've got time for. Yeah. I've got time to spend an hour at the gym every day. Sure. If you have a six pack, if you're really fit, it means that you are, um, it's a sign of wealth now mm-hmm. where, uh, in 1850, it would have been a sign that you unloaded barges. There's, you know, there's no way you could have had a six pack unless you, unless you worked with your hands and probably an ax. But there's another element to um to preppy style and western style in particular uh that at the end of the 19th century it was also 
the peak years of colonialism, Western colonialism, that the, that these were, this was the era when the British empire was at its greatest extent, when the United States and Germany were sort of la- uh, belatedly trying to get in on the colonialism game, uh, that there was for the first time, a real sense of kind of, uh, global, uh, a global community that a nation like the United States could have a Navy that ranged the seas. And in Asia in particular, there was, uh, there was kind of a race to colonize, um, the, you know, the, the, in some cases, ancient, uh, Asian empires, the, the British started colonizing, uh, India a long time before, but China was a territory that Western nations were, um, very aggressively imparting uh, or attempting to impose colonial governments. Uh, Literally from both sides. You've got the right. European powers coming across the Asian continent, and then you've got U.S. gunboats coming across the Pacific in the crosshairs. And during this period, Japan felt extremely vulnerable to European colonial impulse. Japan... Um, was one of the last nations to even admit Western influence, not influence, Westerners at all. Admiral Perry only opened Japan, and by opened, I mean uh, sailed gunboats into Tokyo Harbor and forced them to allow Westerners to arrive. It's the same way demonstrators can open a a Target or a Wendy's. (laughs) Right. It's not really open for business, but... That was only in 1854, and prior to that, Westerners were were prohibited from Japan. But then there, you know, in the next 50 years, uh, the Japanese were really on pins and needles because they were extremely vulnerable to this colonialist, not impulse, this colonialist movement where the West was kind of just grabbing wholesale parts of the world and claiming it for themselves. And I guess we're going to talk about this, but there's an interesting, there's a single Japanese generation that I guess decides to lean into that. And they did. And it was the, the, the Meiji era of Japan where as kind of a preemptive move to forestall, because a lot of the colonial uh, justification was that these were primitive societies, right? You would, you, the, the British could arrive in India and say, oh my goodness, look here, they don't even know how to build a windmill. And and used it as a justification to, what, invade and steal and rape and own. Uh, and the Japanese recognized that although they had an ancient culture, they saw what happened in Japan and in Korea uh, and everywhere else in Asia, with the exception of Thailand, um, that what were ancient cultures could very easily be perceived and denigrated by uh, Western uh, naval officers as being primitive. Backward, yeah. Backward, by virtue of whatever standard you wanted to apply. Um, And so as a self-defense, the Meiji generation in Japan said, let's start dressing like Westerners, let's really go for it here and let's abandon our uh, kimono and put on some wide-legged trousers, slick our hair back and do the jitterbug and see if it, uh, if it offers us a measure of protection. You're saying it like it's a tactic. Uh, and 
maybe from the top down, there's some of that. But, For, the, but there must have been something in the national character that that even though that they had been uh, kind of a, a, a timeless, isolated people, that were something about them was ready to embrace the novelty. If you think about Japanese culture and the um, the care and respect it imparts to detail, if you think about you know the crafts. Mm-hmm. Uh, like culture there and they're just their respect for the absolute finest, uh, like thread level detail of things that are uh, of beautiful things, including even, you know, their appreciation for the, the, um, the decay and destruction, the beauty of decay. Suddenly there's a whole new spectrum of crafts to bring that to bear on, right? And there's nothing there's nothing like tailored clothes to uh to excite the eye and the sense of This is very autobiographical for you. <laughs> but it, but it's true that, you know, that that tailored clothes are shaped, they are they accentuate both the body and also the kind of they 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 are they accentuate movement. Like well-tailored clothes make you look good as you move, mm-hmm. and um, and and beautiful fabrics. I mean, everything about them, at their at their highest expression, it's you know it is more than fashion; it's style, grace. And so there was a lot, you know, there as as Japan opened to the West, and as the West looked at Japan, there was a lot of opportunity for a kind of reciprocal. Uh, moment where both the young people were seeing the West as an exciting place to find new inspiration, but the older and more established class was saying, if the, if, you know, if the emperor continues to appear before these delegations of Western admirals in his traditional outfit, he's taken a lot less seriously than if we put epaulets on him and give him a, a, um, you know, knee high leather boots and make him look like an emperor. That's there, what I've been doing wrong. Yeah, exactly. No epaulets. So there was a combination of of and and it actually appears to have worked and created within the colonial mind of the West at the time, turn of the century, that Japan of the Asian nations was civilized. And that sense that even exists today, that Japan was Japan was and is Japan's the futuristic one. Yeah, yeah. that they were the Asian nation that that uh, that ranked with the nations of Europe. And so this this tactic, but also this tendency, actually did somewhat succeed. And the the hipster youth of the time were known as the uh, as the mobo or modern boy. Is this early 20th century yet? This is this is now sort of uh like flapper era, but uh, World War 1 era. Mobo. The mobo and mogo, modern, modern boy girl. and modern girl. Look how they look how they look to English for the for their fancy forward sounding words, yeah, right? Yeah, right. And and it was, you know, they were kind of seen as like um you know, sort of rowdy, cool, the cool kids. And, and you see, um, you see in pre-war Japan, a lot of photographs of, of very stylish young people, slick back hair and big wide-legged pants, 
um, a lot of fashion that that was take that was derived from the same kind of influence of um, the rich at play, right? The uh, British aristocracy, but in their sporting clothes. And the Japanese also recognized another element of of the rich at sport, which was the kind of frugality that the truly rich express in their clothes, uh, where they wear their clothes until those clothes are threadbare. That seems to accord with a certain Japanese sense of uh, respect and practicality, right? That 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 respect, practicality, and also thriftiness, and also high quality. If you buy oh, yeah. something yeah. quality, if it's made well, you can wear it. And watching it, it's almost a sign that if you're wearing something a little threadbare, hey, you bought something nice enough that it lasted and lasted. And you can see this in preppy fashion, uh, and then and it, it has extended to all fashion, in the sense that now you go to the store and you buy jeans that look like they're forty years old. The way that the thing decays is proof of its quality because a shabby thing falls apart, whereas a well-made thing. Something, it looks shabby and that's a sign that it's not shabby. That's right. right? It's like a Volvo, it's like a 74 Volvo that's still running. It had to have been pretty darn good. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of Japanese enthusiasm for the the new thing, the next thing, um, you know, it's not mere faddishness, but definitely an enthusiasm to embrace, uh, the, and I'm thinking particularly in fashion. Like I, I remember when we were visiting Japan a couple of years ago, walking down the street in, in Harajuku, which is kind of the famous neighborhood in Tokyo for this kind of, a for this kind of forward looking fashion. And there were people lined up in front of a store that was about to open and we were fascinated to know what they had been waiting all night for. And it turned out that the, the new fad of the moment there, someone explained to us was uh, replica Native American jewelry. Oh yeah. So this, this was the hot thing of, of all the young Harajuku kids was turquoise jewelry. Yeah. Little fake arrowheads and feathers and, and so forth. And people had been waiting all night for a store to get in its, you know, the latest models of these. And I'm sure three months later it was something else and nine months later. And today it's something else entirely, but they're still lining up for the thing that shows, uh, you know, I am at the crest of the wave. Well, a lot of that is a product of what we're going to talk about now, because it was, um, you know, the youth in Japan ha- have uh, have been early adopters of, of Western style, but it was, uh, since we're talking about the early 20th century, but it was often really, really frowned upon by the majority of, of Japanese. And we'll see in a second how that, how this process and how take Ivy transformed Japanese fashion to be, to, to allow for this phenomenon that you're describing. One of the, one of the kind of like most, um, stylish of the Mobo youth was a man by the name of Kensuke Ishizu. And Kensuke was like a like a hipster kid, cool kid, um, who in the run up to World War II was kind of just a just a wide pants wearing, hair slicked back, 
kind of groovester. And then in the course of the war, he ended up uh, in occupied China as a, you know, as some functionary in the Japanese government. And then at the end of the war was in China as a, um, you know, kind of like at real risk when, when China opened up, there wasn't a ton of love for whoever the, the young Japanese administrators had been. Right. And he was rescued, I guess, for lack of a better term, or, or grabbed by the shirt collar by, uh, a, a first Marine, a member of the first Marines, an officer by the name of O'Brien. And we don't know anything else about him because, uh, Ishizu didn't, didn't record his this is all whole from, story. This is all from Ishizu's this, this, first person. This is account. Ishizu's story grabbed by this officer and used as a translator uh-huh. and used as a kind of like, you know, assistant, um, it, as the American army came in and took over the occupation of China from the Japanese. And they had a good relationship, and O'Brien kind of uh, rescued him from an uncertain fate. And as they traveled around, O'Brien, who was an Ivy Leaguer, was sort of you know waxing nostalgic about his time in the Ivy League. A new idea or a new concept to Ishizu. He hadn't really he'd never heard that term before, and you know and and. He kind of admire. I mean, O'Brien is in the military and wearing a uniform, of course. But you know, they discussed kind of the the uh, the new sort of exciting uh, what what was now an America that went from being this terrible monster that the Japanese assumed. You know, the American the American occupation was going to be this this awful period in Japanese history. But in fact, you know, Americans turned out to be more benign than than they'd been advertised as by the propaganda machine. And they're and and again the Japanese enthusiastic absorbers and assimilators of of the culture. I guess that's one thing I forgot that the loss in World War II bridges the Meiji era with the Showa era and maybe that leads to new flexibility in you know, well, maybe our ideas led to this, so what about skinny ties? Yeah, right. What a, what a, what a I mean, there's all this I guess baseball, rock then. and roll, and yeah, yeah and uh, and motorcycles, and just crazy, crazy sort of American culture. Um, but we did have pretty good youth culture at the time. We did. I mean, you can't defend everything about America in the forties and fifties, but we we did invent teenagers at the time. That's right, t-shirts and Marilyn Monroe. Um, but Japanese fashion men's fashion in particular, was extremely conservative during this period. This was the era of black suits, black ties. Um, the idea of a gray suit was uh, like uh, um, almost seditious. You don't want to make waves. You don't want to be a fashion maverick in a society that values Conformity. uniformity. Yeah. And when we think of, of the black-suited uh, Japanese salaryman, I mean, that image continued on into the 80s and later, uh, but it was in the 50s and early 60s, it was the, the fact that Japanese men had no interest in style became, it was, it was reflected upon even in Japan at the time as, a, as something that was stifling. And it was a thing that the youth began to rebel against. Kensuke Ishizu started a a fashion brand 
And he took as some of his influences uh, the the thin-lapelled kind of blazer culture of the United States. His his company was called Van Jacket. And he was selling Van Jacket? Van Jacket. I guess V-A-N jacket. Is it van like driving a van or is it van like a kind of a European sounding prefix, like a, a fancy van itself is I mean it also means vanguard, I guess. Like is the, all the front caps. of something. Oh, interesting. Um and and then jacket is jacket. There's a lot of that um that kind of quasi-English. Yeah. Like, the words are signifiers that uh, we are using English more than what the words actually mean. Well, and they often have have uh, analogs in Japanese. Oh, if you say it, if you say the English word, it resonates as a kind of rhyming word or as a as a poetic analog for a different word in Japanese. So it has that kind of uh, it becomes a double entendre. So Ishizu wanted to try to advertise his new look, kind of sell it, um, and trying to organize like a publicity campaign to encourage uh, men in Japan to take an interest in clothes. He was one of these innovators that didn't just have to sell his own product. He had to sell the notion <laughs> that you should care about any product like this. Yeah. That you, that, yeah. that wearing these clothes would be interesting or useful to anyone. And part of the appeal of uh, preppy clothes of the kind of uh, the the sort of disheveled sporting look appealed to or or rather referenced uh, a Japanese notion called bankara, which was a um, the idea that disheveled was uh, an expression of of like rank and style. What's the what's the virtue of it? Is it the same exactly it the, the same the same justification that Ralph Lauren would have? Like, to look sloppy was to be. I have the elite status that I can look sloppy. That's right. And sloppy, if you think about it, and this is something I guess I've pursued my whole life. Sloppy has its own grace, even separate from its associations or or the you know the 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 class reciprocality of of being able to be sloppy. If you look at a pressed fabric and then you look at a wrinkled fabric, fabric wrinkles in a way mm-hmm. that's very appealing. It's more comfortable. It's um Do you have to take care to look uh disheveled in an intentional way? You just, you do not want to be mistaken for the accidentally disheveled. No, right? and again it, it, it it's often a factor of the quality of the clothes. If you, if you are in a double knit blazer and it is wrinkled, it's because you've been sleeping in it long enough that it has creased. Whereas if you're in a linen jacket, it wrinkles when you look at it, but it's a wrinkling that, that, you know, that has a, that, that is like, um, a pebble dropped in a pond. (laughs) You're writing a haiku. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about a linen suit. So, Ishizu, in trying to popularize his clothes, started a little bit of a youth movement, and um, and as you've seen in in Tokyo, in the um, in the Ginza neighborhood, which is a you know an expensive and fashionable neighborhood in Tokyo, a bunch of young people started hanging out 
in preppy clothes. Uh, what 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 we would perceive as the clothes of the moneyed class, but to a Japanese audience at the time, nineteen mid nineteen sixties, uh, they looked like abs- an absolute motorcycle gang. They were wearing th- modest three button jackets and skinny rep ties and chinos and penny loafers. And were they doing this before any mainstream American movement was kind of uh, adopting the this Ivy League look? Well, what's strange about the Ivy League look is being derived from the from the moneyed sports class. By the mid 50s, it had become the American uniform of uh, the sort of collegiate set. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't what you would think of as high fashion. What was fashionable then was sharkskin suits and, I mean, a Brooks Brothers look. But it wasn't, it wasn't uh, disheveled. The American look of the late 50s, early 60s was pretty slick. Mm-hmm. And the disheveled look, the Bermuda shorts and the, you know, the button-down collar that was, you know, that had... Uh, like a wine stain on it. <laughs> that was a thing that that we discovered later and partly as a reflection of the experience of the Japanese looking at it from outside. Oh, it bounced to Japan and back. That's always a fun kind of story when the outsider to your culture sees something about it that you didn't see. What happened in Japan in 1964. Like, like spaghetti westerns, for example. Exactly, right? That spaghetti westerns then went on to define what Americans think of as the look and feel of the West. When it was really, it really was like factored or refracted through a, an Italian lens. Yeah. In this case, in 1964, the police actually raided a group of kids that were dressed in this preppy costume uh, that were, that had described themselves as the Miyuki tribe um, who were pursuing Ivy style, the sort of Japanese way that they, they'll take a, they'll make a homophonic, an analog within Japanese. They call it Ivy. Does that mean something? It's just the, it's just a sonic. I see those, just those symbols for Ivy. Ivy. Um, the police were concerned that in 1964, the Olympics were in Tokyo and they were worried that the, this group of sunglass wearing, uh, hoodlums. like hoodlums in their penny loafers were going to scare foreigners away. And so they busted this group of preps <laughs> and, and Ishizu realized that he needed to explain Ivy league fashion to the Japanese. And so he funded an expedition to the United States to make a film, a documentary film about American Ivy league style that he's, he was going to bring. He's an anthropologist. He now. was, he was going to bring it back to Japan and explain that these clothes were not because compared to a black suit, a madras jacket at the time looked like, it, you know, had con- conveyed the same insouciance and, and, um, rebellion that a leather jacket would have. Sure. Uh, so he was, he, he funded this or he, he, he mounted this expedition in order to make a film about Harvard and Yale 
bring it back to Japan and say, no, 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 this isn't, these aren't rough clothes. These are the, the, the clothes of children at play, the children of the, of the wealthiest family. Educated clothes. So he put together a group of guys. Uh, his, his filmmaker was uh, like a, a student from the Sorbonne by the name of Kiyo Ozawa, who was like a, you know, a film maker, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, filmmaker. He's a film student at, in Paris? or In Paris, yeah. right. Uh, and then Hijime Hasegawa, who had gone to UCSB and, wa- and worked for Van Jacket, but was the one of them that could speak English, who was going to kind of work as their translator and also as a publicist for Van Jacket. And then, uh, you know, a little, uh, they put together a little team of eight people and brought along a man by the name of Teruoshi, a guy by the name of Teruoshi Hayashida, who was going to be the still photographer that, you know, that kind of documented the whole process. Well, they showed up in the United States with, uh, with all their money in a bag because, Japan had strict limits on how much money you could take out of the country. So they had, they put a bunch of yen in a suitcase and were carrying around, you know, half a million dollars or whatever. Still true in China, by the way, my sister-in-law works there and they come home from China every home leave that they get with, uh, you know, waistbands full of, is that right? Bills. Yeah. Suitcase full of cash. Cause there's still, there's no good banking way to do it. And they get here and they go to Harvard. By the Harvard. way, if the Chinese government is listening to this, I was just kidding. That, That's that does not happen. 100% a joke. And it's definitely not my sister. No waistbands full of cash. No. Well, they showed up at Harvard Yard in 1965 and were extremely disappointed to find that all the students walking around Harvard were in cutoff jeans. They're all slobs now. With sweatshirts, you know, and where were the students in the three-button jackets? Where were the tab collars and the rep ties? There was this uh, this gulf between kind of Shizu's facet, you know, like fantasy. About had, had something changed? No, right? It was just... It... The, the difference between 1959 and 1965 did represent a kind of gradual schlubification. Yeah, you were getting into the counterculture. Not quite. Not quite counterculture, but just, I mean, these were students. They weren't uh, wearing ties. They wore ties to church, right? But yeah, as soon as the dress code allows them to do something, they will do it. They will do it. And, um, oh, I should say that Kensuke's, Kensuke's son, Shosuke Ishizu, had taken over for him in the in the filmmaking crew. So Kensuke didn't go himself, okay. but his son Shosuke did. And they spent several weeks wandering around going to Dartmouth and Princeton and Yale trying to find students trying that to find people that dressed well. That dressed well enough <laughs> that they could because he was worried he's going to make this documentary of these kids in flip-flops and it's going to that's not going to play at all. I feel like the Japanese will look better by comparison. Right. He's trying to sell this, this hyper prep look and he couldn't do it this way. So eventually they found enough guys on the crew team. They lurked outside the church on Sunday. They, they pieced together a documentary about, uh, where they found enough preps 
It's just like Nanook of the North, where you have to make the, the Inuit guy do the stuff you think he should do. Like all like all anthropologists, yeah. he had to he had to find the story Here, he thought he was telling. Hold, hold this, we'll take a picture. But the whole time, Teruoshi Hayashida was taking still photographs. And when they got back, they they did cobble together a documentary. They showed it uh, in Tokyo. They actually showed it to the cops as a way of saying, like, no, 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 this is a thing. Like, stop busting the Miyukis. Stop busting our customers, basically. And the cops, like, finally got it, having watched this documentary. And there was a um, – and also the whole time they're trying to sell Van Jacket clothes. It's also, like, a marketing thing. And Do you think that's an alternative to defund the police today? To just show just them – just show them a movie of, like, middle-class people of color? Look, they're look, they're fine. Look, they can just drive their cars places. Why do you have to do this? Stop, stop killing people. I wonder. I wonder how many more movies we could make about it before the cops finally got the message. <laughs> it seems like the message is there. I think the problem is we're also making a larger number of movies where the cops are cool because they because uh, right. they kick down doors and and blow stuff up. Right. If we no. just stop making those movies, we have, well, no. We can make those movies. We just can't show them to the cops. <laughs> Special cop-only TV. <laughs> you guys have to watch uh, nothing but episodes of Atlanta. Well, so Hayashida's photographs, he realized, uh, ended up being kind of a cool document of their trip and the things that they'd seen. And basically, they were photographs of just guys with crew cuts wandering around the quad and when they interviewed the actual students at Princeton, they found that those students had not reflected very much on their style. They thought of it as very utilitarian. You know, uh, there was one kid that was wearing high water pants and they raced over and said, you know, what's, you know, you've obviously put a lot of look, thought into this. And the kid was like, I shrank my pants in the wash. <laughs> and those high that, water. That reminds me of my own college uh, experiences. Like if it's if it's testing week, everybody's gonna be wearing pajama bottoms. Sure, right? you just are wearing what you what you wear. The finals, but, you wear what you wear. But the picture of that kid in his high water pants established that high water khakis were part of preppy style. And even though it was a lie, it was just that he had shrunk his pants, right? And so they didn't get the cooperation they thought they would, uh, because it turned out that uh, that the American students weren't that thoughtful about their clothes. But through the lens of uh, these Japanese like style mavens, all of what was accidental, all of what was incidental, got turned into very intentional style. So then Van Jacket started making high water khakis, and then that became part of the fashion. Well, this book of the still photographs from their adventure was published in Japan and they And what's it called? It's called Take Ivy. Take Ivy. Take I Take V I <laughs> Take Ivy was a play on the Dave Brubeck record that was very fashionable at the time. Oh, take five. Take five And again the the Japanese word for or the Japanese um, homonym of Take Five was Take Fibu. Right. Which sounded like Ibi. Mm-hmm. And so it became, it was like a funny play, funny and, word. And play. it did convey American hipster culture, uh, uh, you know, of the smart set. Right. Take Ivy. But in English, it, it, 
it was meaningless. And in fact, over the years, I've been I've seen Take Ivy and and thought about it a lot over the years, and I can never remember the title of the book <laughs> because it's like Take Ivy. Two random words. What does that even mean? Well, you told me we were going to do Take Ivy today, and I had forgotten. I think we mentioned this. We talked about the book briefly when we talked about the Preppy Handbook did, in, yeah. in a previous entry, and I could not. Take, take, take Ivy. It's like Operation Ivy? And you were like, no, not Operation Ivy. I could not figure out what it was. Yeah. Take Ivy. Take Ivy, please. It's not, that's I, right. I take like, my Ivy. I was like, is this one of the, is this a, one of your other mid-century dirty books? Is, is Ivy an oversexed housewife or undersexed housewife? <laughs> oh, wow. That would be a great, like, sexy story. Take Ivy. Here she comes. Take my Ivy, please. Well, Take Ivy, the book, it didn't sell extremely well, but it became a very influential book among the Japanese. And if you think about Japanese style, it it a lot of it is derived from this hyper prep. Do you feel like to this day you can see echoes of it? Well, sure. Uniqlo. Yeah. It's 100% prep. If uh, uh, the... The clothier J Press, which was in some ways the absolute exemplar of preppy style, they only had five stores. One was in, one was at New Haven, one was at Princeton, one was at Harvard, and one was in Manhattan. I guess they only had four stores. Uh, that was actually purchased by a Japanese company, Onward Kashiyama, in the mid '80s. But what happened? Are you saying the pants I bought at Uniqlo last summer that I thought rode a little high on the ankle? That's all the fault of that one guy at. It is. It's that one guy, I think he was at Princeton, who was like, I don't know, I washed my, you know, my mom didn't wash my pants, I washed them in hot water and they shrank. And 50 years later- Your ankles are still showing. All the shorts and pants I've got Uniqlo are a little short. What was too bad was, immediately after Take Ivy came out, on all of these campuses, the counterculture did arrive. And by 1967, this style was no longer in style. There's a kind of, uh, if you go to those colleges and you look at the the sort of fraternity pictures <laughs> on the wall. It's a big overnight shift around 67, It right? is. It's like Madras jackets, Madras jackets, Madras jackets, tie-dye. And it happened so fast that um, that this Ivy, this Ivy League stuff, even in Japan, looked really dated two years after this, this you know, epic attempt to to make it fashionable and make it kind of understandable. But Take Ivy didn't spawn, but reinforced a preppy, what are you, what are, what are we going to call it? A, an, a preppy echo chamber that started to bounce back and forth between Japan and the United States. Because in 19... 67, right as fashion started to change, right as Ivy League style went away, uh, a guy by the name of Ralph Lauren started a line of ties that were rep ties. And this was, this was style that was now dated uh, in a college campus sense. Was there any sense that he had he had seen this stuff through an Asian filter? That's the thing. As it what 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 its transference to Japan and Japanese culture did was when it 
bounced back, it bounced back stylized so that what had become a kind of schlubby American, like the style of decay and sports and college slobs went to Japan and came back as a very, um, it, it, in the same way that you were describing spaghetti westerns, it's, 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 it's like heightened and a little mannered, and, and it showed us to ourselves. So that Ralph Lauren started selling his striped ties, and by nineteen sixty nine, they were in Bloomingdale's. By nineteen seventy one, he had expanded, started making tailored shirts, and then in seventy three or seventy four. Ralph Lauren designed all the costumes for the Ralph, uh, I'm sorry, for the Robert Redford film, The Great Gatsby. Right. And so there was a kind of, now baked into it, a nostalgia that we could return to this American style, but it was now, it had been converted to high fashion. And and the, did we ever talk about how ragtime came back at the same time? Did it we, did. Did we talk about that in the preppy entry? We've talked. I've wanted to. <laughs> All these do, things are Robert Redford's fault. I've wanted to do this thing about how America seems to uh, seems to like to go back in twenty year increments. And in nineteen seventy, you were we had a Sha Na Na revival of the fifties, right. but also then a ragtime a revival of the twenties. So you know we were two iterations away from from ragtime, but it was back in style again. I mean, I think yeah, we're, you, you've always got the wave. So yeah, it's, right. it's whether it's two wavelengths away or one. So during this period, you know, Ralph Lauren was now popularizing Ivy league style in the, not, not directly in the shadow of Japanese, like retro, but, you know, in, in the fashion world that, you know, that existed because Japanese culture was not yet widely consumed in the United States. Yeah. We're still a little before that, right? But for it to have been, for it to have been commodified and stylized overseas, it now kind of re-entered as a, as a separate thing. You, it was detached from its, uh, from the, from its actual roots and now you could locate its roots in mythology almost. You could, you could take the style away from its, you could d- basically commodify it or, or appropriate it. Yeah. People don't remember the, the people who were the right age, you know, the, the people who would think of it as youth culture are no longer part of youth culture. Right. So it's, it's totally divorced from the actual cultural context. So it's not just the tie that your dad wore. It's the tie that Gatsby wore. It's the tie that, um, and, and, and this is all, you know, filtering through Japanese culture too at the time. Like it, it, the style had been rejected, but then it came back. It started to cycle as a retro, like a, like a, um, well, and, and eventually became what preppy style is, which is now eternal, like an eternal style unrelated to it's lost its link. And now it's just circling itself. It just cycles. And so that now the button down shirt is not seen as an emblem of any one particular thing, any one particular idea. It's not connected to the game of polo or even to money. It's just become as ubiquitous as the t-shirt. 
and the t-shirt is a thing that's that that was part of a military uniform right the the white t-shirt was a thing that you wore when you came back from from World War II it didn't exist prior to that really but the book take ivy itself never really survived to a second printing it was only in japanese it existed kind of only in the minds of a few american super hipster fashion people until 2008 when a blogger by the name of michael williams who kept who, who has a men's fashion blog that's still in existence called a continuous lean which again feels like almost a japanese construction a continuous lean i don't know what that means it's just some kind of i don't know continuous lean i'm sure it means something it might mean who knows what it means i haven't dug that deep into it it seems like some fashion thing i should know but michael williams posted on his blog about take ivy and took a selection of photographs from it and said like look at this isn't this cool and it really is, when you look at the pictures, it feels like an anthropology textbook because these these pictures are of just these preppy kids in there without having put any thought into their clothes, just sort of wearing the clothes of their time and space. Do they look posed? Do they look like no, an ad? It, they're just, it, it might as well be National Geographic. These were pictures taken kind of uh, uh, candidly. There's kids standing in line at the mess hall, kids kind of, you know sort of shyly aware that someone's pointing a camera at them and kind of half turning like, what are you doing? Oh, but they're not models. It is just people on the quad. Just people on the quad. And it was before a time, I think, where you wouldn't just point a camera at a kid, take his picture and put it in a book. So Today you got to get a release. You got to get a release. Anyway, this, uh, this blog suddenly sparked a huge resurgence in appreciation of this hyper-mannered preppy style filtered through sort of Japanese appreciation and almost misremembering of it or, you know, taking elements of it and modifying it to include other, other elements that we wouldn't have maybe seen or recognized. And so the book was reprinted by a company called, or by a, uh, a printer called Powerhouse Reprints, or Power, I'm sorry, Powerhouse. They're just a publisher. They're not reprints. Uh, Powerhouse. Do you have a copy? I've never actually bought a copy, but suddenly they reprinted this book and they sold 50,000 copies of it. And it was, you know, Ralph Lauren had it for sale in their store. J. Crew was selling it. The only copy I'm seeing on Amazon is $340. Which means even, because even the reprint got torn, got you know, there's a run on those. Too. If you can find the, um, if you can find an original copy of it, they cost multiple thousands of dollars now. The original Japanese, the Japanese take one. Ivy, and the problem is the pictures are not very good. They're kind of out of focus. They're, they're, <laughs> the printing was pretty saturated and grainy, and the pictures suffer from not being posed. Because a lot of them are, you know, there's one guy that's kind of well-dressed in a Madras jacket and then two guys in sweatpants. Yeah, you probably don't understand how much we take for granted everything looking just right in fashion photography. How You know, for every one photo that gets used, there was one where the crease didn't look quite right or the angle isn't quite right. And what you really want to see is 
um, you want to see these pictures having been taken 10 years before or five years before, or you want to, you want the photographers to have spent a little bit more time at Princeton than they did mm. because, um, these days this would be a, this would be a beautiful coffee table book with, you know, wonderful photos of the lights just right. Yeah. Of all these students in their best clothes. And what it really feels like is that you're in the mess hall at Princeton between classes and, um, you can almost smell the, (laughs) smell the unwashed socks on these kids. So if we're talking to a distant future audience, do you think prep is now self-perpetuating enough that, that no matter what species we're talking to, that they understand, you know, what a Ralph Lauren tie looks like? Well, I think what's happened is that prep has become a kaleidoscope. Prep has become a a, um, a color wheel. And at its basest level, all of the basic items of men's, menswear universally now are derived from the preppy style of, of uh, take ivy. Khakis, jeans, sweatshirts, button-down shirts, polo shirts. We'll never be rid of them. It's the basic vocabulary now. But you can then bump it up a level and add in tweed jackets, modris jackets, three-button suits, thin lapels, rep ties, and you're at a level, you're at a higher level of prep that feels more intentional and that conveys more than just that these are the basic foundation items you know, because there are an awful lot of people wearing khakis and polo shirts that aren't trying to be preppy. That that, that it's just know. just the clothes that it's they just got default it. clothes. Now. Yeah, that's just clothes. They just say they they're they have the Kirkland brand, and it's just like <laughs> mm, I don't know. These are clothes, but you can add that extra level, and and still wear khakis and polo shirts, but by adding those other elements, convey that it's a style rather than just a basic level. And then you can add into that, that this isn't just a tweed jacket. It's a Harris tweed jacket, that this isn't just a rep tie. It's a J press tie. You can add both brand and, um, and quality materials, quality of construction so that you are, you're adding another layer of intentionality to it. Another layer of, uh, of awareness of what the style is, wh- where the style comes from and what it's meant to communicate. And then you can follow that progression all the way up to, you know, that you're wearing quaddy shoes or Alden shoes. You know, you're, you're very definitely then living in a world where you're communicating to other people that are interested in style and fashion still based on khaki pants and, and a polo shirt, but with all this additional context um, that puts you into a place where your style is, you know, at a at operating in a, in, in a pretty rarefied air all along this, this kind of continuum of this, you know, what would basically is, um, I, I can I can't imagine that that futurelings won't also be communicating with one another 
across this great spectrum. Well, there's certainly spectrum. the possibility that on a warming Earth, nobody will wear clothes at all. It'll be the end of fashion. The problem is I have a, I have a, a couple of good friends who were Manhattanites and real denizens of, of the oldest, preppiest schools. And they moved to L.A. because they were in the, uh, the show business, the business of show. The business we call show. And they got to L.A. and they realized that 85% of their wardrobes were unwearable. <laughs> right. Like nobody wears a sweater, let alone a tweed jacket. And so they had to modify their style to be useful in L.A. And really, I mean, you know, they're only able to wear the summeriest summer clothes. I um, guess that means you could, what, what, what we'll all be having is like tattoos of preppy clothes preppy, handed on to us. Preppy tats. It'll be the equivalent of tribal tattoos, except the tribes are like, you know, Cape Cod or whatever. Like everything in fashion and style and the arts, we feel it feels like right now we're in a period of um, of almost total recapitulation. Like there's no new, there's nothing new under the sun. That's good. It means we did everything. We did it. Right. End of history. Definitely a sign that our species is doomed, but but really good for fil- finishing off your checklist. But it also feels like at any time, at any moment, five years from now, there could be a new movement that could kind of wipe all of this away. I mean, for how for how long did the derby hat survive as the, I mean, how long, there was a time probably right before the events depicted here where someone said, well, there will always be fedoras. No one will ever not wear a fedora to work. That's the basic thing on your head. Fedora, it's... It's, it's what a head is. Yeah. And maybe that's the fate of the polo shirt. Yeah, it's going to be all jumpsuits. Once we all get our jumpsuits, it's the end of prep. God, I can't wait. And that concludes Take Ivy. Entry 1274.LK1619, certificate number 21125, in the omnibus. You can, uh, if you would like to check in with myself or John, let us send us pictures of your wardrobe. John will tell you what he thinks. I will delete them. Hmm. Uh, you can find us on a variety of cursed social media platforms as at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Jointly, we are at Omnibus Project. Uh, You can find other like-minded listeners to discuss the future, the present and future of, uh, distant future of fashion with at our Futurelings Facebook pages. Uh, There's also a subreddit and a Discord. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Please do. Uh, Please send us physical items. Send us your uh, send us your grandpa's old linen suit to Omnibus Project at PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. I'm a medium. Mm-hmm. I'm an extra large. Here's what we got in the mail today, John. Uh, this is an a TV license because we recently added uh, what BBC TV license fees. To the omnibus. This one is actually from Ireland. Apparently, there's a parallel system for whatever the the public TV network is in Ireland. The Minister for Communications, Energy, and Natural Resources uh, wants a $160 fee from Ken Power. Hmm. 
and Ken forwarded along his bill. The above-named person, it says, is hereby authorized subject to Section 143 of the Broadcasting Act of 2009 to keep and have possession of a television set, capital T, capital S, at the specified premises. Television set. But he sent it to us. I don't know if he paid it or not. He sent it to us maybe instead of paying it. So Whoa. So Ireland well, is going to seize his Well, but TV. we're now authorized to watch TV in Ireland. If we pay 160 euros. Uh. He also sent us the only American money he had. Isn't that nice? Hey! He sent us two $5 bills. Literally the widow's might. That's fantastic. I have $10 in my wallet right now, and it's 100% from Omnibus listeners who have (laughs) sent us $5 bills in the mail. Because it's the end times and there's nowhere to spend cash anymore. Yeah. But thank you. He he sent us 100% of, and I I love, I hope that's his real name, because I I have always been a believer in Ken Power. Ken Power! Woo! Ken Power. That's like what I say before I do the thing with my fist and turn into a... Saturday morning superhero. Oh, I thought it was before you bedded your wife. <laughs> yeah, I always say that. Ken Power! Da, 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 da. She... <laughs> I'm wearing only a pillowcase as a cape. <laughs> I did the future links. Oh, Patreon, if you would like to, you know, you, you can send us currency in the mail, but I don't trust my postal carrier necessarily. And, I don't know. I'd, you and know. neither should you. Yeah. Uh, so if you would like to contribute without just taking cash out of your wallet and putting it in an envelope, I mean, that's good. It'll keep the Postal Service. I like it. I like it. John likes it. But you can also contribute uh, virtually through patreon.com slash omnibusproject, which is really, at the moment, the thing that is keeping the show around. It's keeping the lights on, for sure. And we love it. Thank you to our Patreon donors. We hope that the various perks you're receiving uh, make you not regret your decision. Well, jump for joy is what I'm hoping. Yeah, I hope you jump up and down and say Ken Power. Ken every, Power! Every time you think about how your donation is being put to work here. There with your with your calf-high socks and your and your pillowcase cape. Ta-da! Wearing, wearing my Uniqlo socks. <laughs> Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived or how long the polo shirt is the ubiquitous shirt of men. We hope and pray that... Both the catastrophe we fear may never come and also a new style arrives upon the upon the earth. Please, Japan, help us. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.